Good morning. Before I begin, I want to say that I don't know what kind of week you've had or what kind of Christmas you had yesterday, whether it was joyful or painful, whether you come in today encouraged and happy or broken down and lonely. And I'm sure that there are both this morning. But regardless, know that if you are here, we are glad that you are here. This service is for you, and you belong here this morning. That said, thank you for encouraging my heart with your singing this morning. It's one of the reasons why we sing together on Sunday mornings. Of course, we sing to worship our God, but we also sing to minister to one another. When we confidently sing lines like, What a foretaste of deliverance and how unwavering our hope. Or by grace we'll stand on your promises and by faith we will walk as you walk with us. Then those of us who are here this morning who may feel beaten down or discouraged or even hopeless can be reminded of what is true and can be carried along by the faith of those around them. So thank you for ministering to me this morning ministering to one another, and I pray that the truth of God's Word would speak to us where we are this morning to encourage, to uplift, to convert, to convict, rebuke, and strengthen each one of us as we need and as the Lord knows that we need. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 3 this morning, so please turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the Bible underneath the seat in front of you and turn to page 202, and that's where we're going to be. While you're turning there, I just want to lay out some biblical context for us so that we can understand where this particular passage fits within the rest of the Bible. So, the book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and it's the story of God freeing His people from slavery in Egypt giving them the land that he promised to their forefather Abraham and restating his covenant with them, which tells them what it means to be his people and reaffirms his eternal love and faithfulness to them. The problem, which plays out in the next three books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is that God's people rebel against his authority. And they do not trust him to deliver on this promise that he made to bring them into their land. So, they face judgment from God for their sin. They wander in the desert until that first generation, the ones who are brought out of Egypt and the ones who rebelled against God, all dies under the judgment of God for their sin. And then the book of Joshua describes them actually entering the land, conquering most of it, though not all of it, that God commanded them to conquer, and dividing the land up based on their tribes. And now, we're in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, the people have been established in the land. And they're trying to figure out what it means to live as a distinct nation in the land that God has given them, while remaining true to the covenant that God has made with them. With that background context in mind, let's read together. Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 12. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. 
and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for what you have written and how you intend these very words to speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, we pray that you would do just that, that your spirit would work through the power of your word to soften our hearts, to remind us of what is true, to point us to you, to convict us of sin, and to bring us into um, a greater love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. What I want us to pay attention to this morning is the way that judgment and salvation go together in this story, and how they both point to God's covenant faithfulness, even and especially when his people are not being faithful themselves. While judgment and salvation might seem like polar opposites, the Bible often sets them side by side in the story of God's people and in the grand story of redemption. So first, let's look at Israel's judgment for forgetting their salvation. At the beginning of this passage, we see God's judgment on Israel. And like many times in Israel's history, God is using the surrounding pagan nations around them as instruments of his judgment against his people. But why is God judging Israel? What did they do to deserve this? Well, look at verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel 
because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Since the author of Judges knows that maybe sometimes we're not the most attentive readers when we go to read the Bible, he did us the favor of telling us twice in one verse exactly what Israel did wrong. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But what does that mean specifically? If you spent any time in the book of Leviticus, then you know that there are many different ways for God's people to sin against their God. But the author of Judges doesn't leave this up to us to guess. Just a few verses earlier, up the page in verse 7 of chapter 3, the author elaborates on what exactly Israel did to merit God's judgment. He says, They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth, these idols of the surrounding nations around them. They forgot the Lord their God, the one who established his covenant with them and brought them into this land to begin with. Sadly, this development should not come as a surprise to any of the Israelites who were paying attention. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses knows that he will not lead God's people into the promised land. So he's giving them some final instructions on how to live well in the land that the Lord their God is giving them. And he says, When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and, here's the key phrase, by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. And unfortunately, here in Judges chapter 3, it looks like Moses is exactly right. The people of Israel entered the promised land and very quickly found themselves doing exactly what God through Moses told them would happen. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot about their God. They forgot about his covenant. They forgot about his mighty works on their behalf. And because of that, they fell under the judgment of God that Moses had prophesied over them in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And this judgment is symbolized particularly in the establishment of Eglon's capital. Verse 13, it says, it's in the city of Palms. And that's not explicit here in this text, but if we look elsewhere in the Old Testament, we learn that the city of Palms is a nickname for Jericho. If you remember the story in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6, Jericho is the first city that the Israelites encounter in the promised land after they cross over the Jordan. And this imposing fortress city is emblematic of everything that the Israelites feared about the promised land. Jericho was everything Israel was not. It was powerful. It was established. It was ruled by a king and was protected by a great wall. But there was one important thing that Jericho lacked that Israel had. They had God on their side. And famously, we see that that makes all the difference in this battle. God knocks down the city walls and hands all of Jericho's inhabitants over to the Israelites for destruction. And this is one of the key moments in the life of Israel when the promises of God come true. 
when God proves himself faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that he reaffirmed with them on Mount Sinai. And so to relate this to our history as Americans, just imagine if England had won the War of 1812. They had reconquered the American colonies and they set up their new provisional government in Independence Hall in downtown Philadelphia. It's not just that they had to set it up somewhere. They picked somewhere specific. It's demoralizing. There is symbolism to where this government is headquartered because of the history associated with this particular place. History that is foundational to the identity of the people. And so this occupation is personal, but it's also pointed in a way that speaks directly to the sins of God's people. They forgot the Lord their God. They forgot his mighty works among them. They forgot how he delivered them from their enemies. They forgot what happened at Jericho. And now, God is sending them a pointed message through the Moabites. And we would be remiss in our reading of this passage, and I would be remiss in my preaching of it if we didn't stop and let this passage ask that pointed question of us. In what ways have we forgotten God? How have we let our hearts be seduced by the idols around us instead of holding fast to the Lord our God? And I think it's important to recognize that the question I asked is not, have you forgotten God, but how have you forgotten God? John Calvin called the human heart a factory of idols. And we see that truth played out in so many ways in our lives. It's subtle, but we very easily and we very quickly allow our hearts to wander and to seek other things to give us meaning and hope and deliverance from the difficulties of our lives. Every time we sin, we are, we are engaging in the same functional atheism that the Israelites display in this passage when they forget their God. As one writer put it, this is not philosophical atheism. We have not reasoned or argued ourselves to this position. We're not consciously walking around with a worldview that denies the existence of God. But every time we sin, we are acting as though there is no higher authority than ourselves. No one to whom we are accountable. And no one for whom we are called to live in a specific way. Instead, we put our preferences and our desires in the place of God. And there are some clear ones, some clear God substitutes that we see, like alcohol or drugs or illicit sexual gratification or overeating. And it's easy for us to recognize people who are wrapped up in these things and realize that they're looking to these things these unhealthy things to give what only God can provide. But there are also many, many more culturally permissible ones that we allow ourselves to indulge in that we can just as easily miss in our hearts and in the hearts of the people around us. Your job, your spouse, your family, your health, your reputation, these are good things. Don't hear me saying that these are evil things. But the disposition of our hearts is to turn from the giver to the gifts and give ultimate meaning and worth in our lives to the things that God has given us instead of to God himself. Because we, like the Israelites, are quick to forget our God. 
may be discouraging to you this morning, but we as humans have not changed since the time the book of Judges was written. I want to encourage you to think about where this might be true in your heart and your life this morning. Where are you not taking God at his word? Where are you seeking comfort or seeking hope or seeking security or seeking meaning from things that are not God himself? It's not just that we are, we may or may not be, we are. The question is where. Sure, we might not be bowing down to carved images, probably, but if we're honest, we have the same heart posture that the Israelites had. My hope for us this morning is that it would not take us 18 years to realize that and to cry out to God in repentance. So if you feel convicted this morning that you have been forgetting God, then turn to him now, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. He will gladly receive you. The Bible is clear throughout, and especially in this passage. God is faithful to his people, even and especially when they are unfaithful to him. So Israel finds itself bearing God's judgment for breaking his covenant, but thankfully, they're not experiencing the full weight of God's wrath in this judgment. God will deliver and restore his people instead of giving them what they truly deserve, which is utterly destroying them for their sin. But someone else in the story gets a much more pointed experience, we might say, of God's wrath upon them. Let me read the words of Joshua following the conquest of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. So maybe things don't turn out so well for the man who did just that. That brings us to our second point, Moab's judgment for Israel's salvation. Just as God used Moab to bring about Israel's judgment for their sin, God will also use Israel to bring about judgment on Moab for its ungodliness and its unrighteousness. Now, if we zoom out here and we think about the larger story of the Old Testament, we remember that this is not the first time God has done this. Most notably, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we have the most famous example. God used the freeing of his people from bondage in slavery in Egypt to judge their captors, the Egyptians. Just like the conquest of Jericho, this was not a victory that was won by the strength or ingenuity of the Israelites. It was won by the power of God. But they very quickly forget that truth, just like they forgot about the Lord their God in worshiping idols. They try to live their lives their own way and in their own power, and this is where they end up. But there is still hope. You remember Moses' predictions for the people that I read from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4 about how they will do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoke him to anger. That's true. But listen to what Moses says right after that in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you search with him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. 
So Moses not only foretells the apostasy and the waywardness of the Israelites, but also their return to the Lord and God's faithfulness to them in the midst of all of it. So once again, we see Moses' words ringing true here in this passage. The people wander away from God. They begin worshiping idols, and they are judged severely for their covenant disobedience. But eventually, they come to the end of themselves. And as verse 15 says, they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And God, being faithful to his promise and loving to his people, raised up for them a deliverer. And this is where we really get to the meat of this story. Everything slows down as we take 14 verses to describe the contents of less than one day. You can see the storytelling prowess of the author of Judges on display in the ways that he slowly and methodically winds his tale. We have foreshadowing and symbolism and irony. We have a noble cause, a brave protagonist, a comically inept antagonist, an exciting climax, and a fulfilling conclusion. So let's walk through the story, and we'll see what we can learn from this exciting and, frankly, disturbing account. First, we should pay attention to how the author of Judges describes Ehud in verse 15. Because I think verse 15 is notable for what it doesn't tell us, in addition to what it does tell us. Because it doesn't tell us anything about Ehud's character. Is he a good leader? Is he even a good man? We don't know. What did he do for a living? How old is he? We don't know any of these things. We don't learn any biographical details. What do we get instead? Verse 15, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Okay. Why is this the information that we're given? At the very least, we can know a little bit about the situation from what we're told. The tribe of Benjamin's land was located right next to the territory that Eglon captured. So it would seem reasonable that they, more than perhaps any other tribe, felt the sting of the Moabite conquest. So it's not surprising that someone from perhaps the most afflicted group is raised up as the deliverer for Israel. But also, elsewhere in the book of Judges and in the book of 1 Chronicles, we learn that the men from the tribe of Benjamin were renowned, not only for their fighting skill, but especially for their left-handedness or perhaps for ambidexterity, that they could fight with both hands equally well. So we shouldn't be surprised, necessarily, that Ehud is described this way, that he's described as a left-handed man because, one, it fits with his tribal reputation. That makes sense. But two, it's important foreshadowing about the role that he will play in Israel's deliverance. But that's all we get. That's all we hear about Ehud as a man. And I think that that is intentional and that is significant. Though he is certainly the main character of this story, the story is not truly about him. It's a story about God delivering his people and using Ehud as the means to accomplish that end. So the lack of biographical detail that we get about Ehud is not meant to lead us to wonder about him. It's meant to direct our gaze upward reminding us that Ehud is just a tool in the hands of an almighty God who is alone worthy of that wonder and of our worship. 
And I think that we as Christians can fall victim to the temptation sometimes to revere the people that God uses instead of looking past them to the one who is worthy of all honor and glory. I confess that it's very encouraging to hear people after my sermons tell me that they liked my sermons or say that they liked the music on a Sunday morning. But I promise you that instead of hearing, man, how great was that sermon? Every single person who stands in this pulpit would much rather hear, man, how great is our God? Pastor Raymond and the other elders need encouragement in the difficult work of shepherding this congregation. But the ultimate goal of all that we do at this church is not the recognition of those God has placed here to serve. But it is the glory of God himself. And I'm also confident in saying that John Piper and Jen Wilkin and Tim Keller and John MacArthur and Jackie Hill Perry and anyone else that you read or listen to or look to to help understand the Bible better only want the name of Jesus lifted high, not their own. So let's thank God for the faithful men and women that he has placed in our lives, but also recognize that he alone is worthy of our worship, of our honor, and of our praise. So we must fight the temptation that we have in our hearts once again to be more concerned with the gift rather than the giver. So we have our main character in Ehud, but before we jump into the rest of the story, the author of Judges thinks we still need some more background information. We learn that Israel, like many other conquered people throughout history, must pay tribute to the king of Moab as a means of humiliation to remind them of their status as subservient and to help fill the royal treasury with the spoils of victory. And Ehud apparently has the honor of being part of the group sent for this particular trip to take the tribute to Eglon. So in preparation for his journey, Ehud makes himself a sword about 18 inches long and sticks it on his right thigh under his clothes. And this is an area where we once again see the storytelling skill of the author of Judges coming out. Because we have this foreshadowing, we, he gives us this information that will be relevant later, but he just doesn't take it anywhere. He said, you're going to need this, keep it, and then we're going to move on. So Ehud makes a blade, straps it to his thigh, and then we change the subject. This information is apparently going to matter, just not yet. So Ehud goes with the group from Israel, and he does all of the bowing and all of the ring kissing and all of the handing over of tribute that's required of him. And then we have another strange aside, another strange bit of information we get from the author. End of verse 17, he says, seemingly out of nowhere, now Eglon was a very fat man. Now what bearing does that have on the story? None. Yet. But what the ancient Israelites would have picked up on in the way that this is phrased is that Eglon is being portrayed not just as fat, but as fattened, like a calf or a sheep before the slaughter. He is being set up as this character who is portrayed as ripe for assassination, basically. He is an easy target waiting for Ehud to begin his deception. So Ehud leaves with all the other Israelite representatives after the party is over, but after a while... He, come, he turns back by himself, and he returns to Eglon's palace in Jericho. And he goes to see the king, and wisely, he appeals to Eglon's royal vanity to get him alone. He strokes the kingly ego, making him feel special and important 
by proclaiming a secret message meant for only him. And so here we have a bit of the story that's actually just implied, but not specifically stated. And it may not seem important, but the author of Judges has already primed us to understand what's going on in the background of this scene. He's already given us this information. So if we take a step back and think about it, we should ask ourselves how someone entered the presence of the king wearing a deadly weapon. That seems like preventing assassination 101. We should assume that whatever guards and attendants Eglon had were therefore not aware of the presence of Ehud's hidden dagger. But how? How could they possibly have missed that? Wouldn't they have searched everyone just to prevent this exact possibility from happening? Yes, they almost certainly did. But they made one crucial mistake. They assumed that he was right-handed. If they checked his hip for a weapon, then it must have only been the left side because that is where right-handed warriors keep their sword. So whether by laziness or by pride or by ineptitude, the guards let Ehud carry his weapon in to see the king, seemingly without any suspicion that he might pose a threat to their lord just because he is left-handed. So Eglon then, in his pride, grabs hold of the incompetency baton handed off by his servants and begins his part of the race to his own death. He dismisses everyone else from the room once Ehud declares he has a message and leaves no one to protect him and no one to even be a witness for when Ehud strikes. His pride fails him yet again as he stands up and moves toward Ehud to bask in the glory of whatever this privileged information is that only his royal ears get to enjoy. Straight from God, apparently, that Ehud has promised to give him. And in a move that seems straight out of a Hollywood action movie, Ehud delivers perhaps the best one-liner in the Old Testament, delivering the double-edged message of God's judgment right into the oversized belly of his enemy. Eglon falls dead to the floor, and the sword and handle are completely swallowed up by the evidence of Eglon's habitual overindulgence. And to add insult to injury, his body empties its bowels in the midst of his death. So this is a very, very undignified death for such a powerful leader up until this point. And taking advantage of this situation, Ehud sets up the perfect escape plan. He locks the doors, which not only slows down his pursuers, but also adds to the implied story that perhaps the smell emanating from the king's chamber would suggest. He escapes with enough time to gather an army of his kinsmen and rout the Moabites, bringing the happy ending of peace to the land for 80 years. It's really quite an adventure story. But we shouldn't miss the point of all of this action and all of this bloodshed, that God shows himself faithful to hear the cry of his people and deliver them from the subjugation that they brought on themselves. He remained true to his promise. And through the judgment that God brings down on Moab, he accomplishes salvation for his people. In one fell swoop, God cuts down the most powerful nation in the region and raises his own people up to a place of peace and of security. But with the way that this passage portrays Eglon, and his servants, it almost seems a little over the top. 
Eglon is the classic bumbling fool, the fattened calf led to the slaughter, made fun of for his extreme obesity, and shown to be unwise for letting himself alone, unprotected, with an enemy. And his servants are shown as inept for their failure to detect Ehud's weapon and for leaving the king totally exposed to assassination. Eglon's pride leaves him vulnerable to attack, and he pays the ultimate price, ending up a defiled corpse on the floor. In fact, so deep is his humiliation that he goes from being Eglon, king of Moab, multiple times in the beginning of this passage, to not even having his name mentioned again in the second half of this passage. The king who was mightier than any other of his day is reduced to a non-entity. Then we're made to enjoy the embarrassment at, uh, of his servants for waiting so long outside the door as they try to give Eglon some privacy, which also shows them to be foolish, as it gives Ehud plenty of time to escape and to gather an army and to capture the strategic ground necessary to completely destroy the Moabites. In fact, verse 29 says, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. The tables had been turned. The captors had become the captees. Moab folded like a cheap card table. So if we're honest, it really seems like the way that the enemies of Israel are portrayed in this passage is a little much. It's a little over the top. It's a little on the nose. But I think that's an intentional choice on the part of the author of Judges. He's lampooning this mighty kingdom of Moab. Look what fools! So inept, so weak, so pathetic. But like all good satire, it functions as a mirror to society. It's a sharp jab at the Israelites that says, if Moab is so pathetic, then what does that say about you? They conquered you. How sad must you be to have been conquered by such a terrible, pathetic kingdom? How far have you fallen from the mighty days when God delivered you? And then the most piercing observation of all, you wanted to be like them. That's what got Israel into this mess in the first place. They forgot the Lord their God because they entered the land, looked around at the people they were supposed to conquer but didn't, and said, hey, that looks pretty cool. Maybe we should worship these idols instead of the Lord since that's what everyone else is doing. And once again, responsible Bible reading requires us to allow the mirror of Scripture to expose our own flaws and our own shortcomings as well as those of the people that we read about in God's Word. It's so easy for us today to look around at the world around us and say, that's so sad. They're so lost without Jesus. They don't even know what they're living for. They're chasing after fleeting and ungodly things. But if we're honest with ourselves, just like the Israelites, we want to be like them. We want the American dream. We want power. We want comfort. We want respect. We want reputation. We want it pleasure, and we want it all, and we want it for ourselves and no one else. What we really want is a God who delivers us from our hardships but cannot tell us what to do. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not just the Lord. He is our Lord. And as His people, we are called to covenant faithfulness as well to setting our hearts and minds on what He has said is good 
and devoting our time and energy to what He has said matters. Pursuing holiness in our lives, seeking to grow in our love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, taking the good news to those around us who do not know the Savior, caring for the oppressed and the widows and the orphans, seeking justice, seeking reconciliation. These are the things God cares about. Now we have to ask ourselves this morning, does that sound like your daily to-do list? It certainly doesn't sound like mine. Mine is focused on me. My to-do list is make sure I'm comfortable. Save all of my energy. Not waste time on people who can't do any good for me. It's selfish. It's lazy. It's sinful. It's honest. And it shows how far short I fall every single day from what God requires of me as one of His people. And I fear that if you are honest, you perhaps see a little bit of that in yourself as well. But as we've been encouraged throughout this passage, though we as God's people continue to fall short of His covenant, He does not. Even when we are unfaithful, He is faithful. That brings us to our third point, Jesus' judgment for our salvation. While it seems like this story has a happy ending, it is disappointingly short-lived. If you skip over our enigmatic friend Shamgar, who gets all of verse 31 and only verse 31 to himself, then you'll see at the beginning of chapter 4 that the Israelites are back at it again. Once again, the author of Judges says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. It reminds me of the proverb that says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Israel just keeps coming back for more. They keep forgetting the God who not only delivered them out of Egypt, but literally just delivered them out from under the hand of Moab. Sadly, that's the story of the entire book of Judges. God's people keep forgetting Him. They keep going back to their sin and breaking their covenant with the Lord. And even outside of the cycles that we see in the book of Judges, this story points to a bigger pattern we see in the whole Bible. Ever since Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, God's people have been looking, longing for the fulfillment of His promise that Eve's offspring would crush the head of the serpent, defeating Satan once and for all and restoring man to a right relationship with his creator. And though it is not explicitly mentioned, we should feel that tension running through every single one of the stories in the Old Testament. Every time a leader comes forth or God promises deliverance for his people, the question is the same. Is this the one? Is this the seed of the woman who will defeat the serpent once and for all? Is this the one who will finally undo what Adam and Eve did in the garden, who will reverse the curse of sin and death? We see it first with Cain, Adam and Eve's firstborn. But rather than crush the head of the serpent, he crushes the head of another seed of the woman. So that's not it. That's not what God had in mind. And everything goes downhill from there. Then Noah is singled out as a righteous man even though the rest of the world is not. Maybe he's it. Well, after the flood, he gets into some trouble of his own with fruit and nakedness, so he ends up no better than Adam and Eve. But then God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he promises him that through his offspring, all of the nations will be blessed. 
God is remaining faithful to his promise, but we haven't seen it yet. So we have this miracle child, Isaac. He must be it, right? Well, not if Abraham kills him, but he doesn't. So that works out. He could still be it. But no, he's not. And so on through Jacob and his sons and their descendants who end up being enslaved in Egypt. But God raises up Moses to deliver his people. And it's awesome. Plagues and miracles and so much evidence that God is working among his people that it seems like this has got to be it. This has to be when it's happening, when the seed of the woman is coming forth. But no, Moses fails to live up to God's perfect standard as well. And though he leads God's people out of their slavery in Egypt, he dies without even getting to enter the promised land. Joshua takes over. He does a good job. He leads the people valiantly into their land, but soon enough, he dies too. And that's where we find ourselves, here in the book of Judges. The promised deliverer has not come. The people continue to fall back into sin. They continue to forget their God. But these cycles of Judges reinforce what we've been seeing all along. Earthly leaders cannot bring the salvation that God has promised to His people. Every time hope revives for a new for a new leader, it proves unfounded. Every leader sins and dies, leaving the people really not much better off than they were before. And I hate to spoil the rest of the Old Testament for you, but it doesn't get better. Things do not improve. Prophets and priests and kings come, and every single one of them goes just the same. None of them is the promised seed of the woman. None crushes the head of the serpent. And so Ehud, our dashing hero, clever as he is, stands right in the middle of a long line of leaders that God's people look to for ultimate final deliverance and come up short. But if we really understand the Bible as a whole, eventually we'll realize that this long line of disappointing leaders is actually one big arrow pointing forward to the one who did come to deliver us once and for all. And all of these instances of judgment and salvation in the Old Testament are meant to show us, once again, that judgment and salvation are two sides of the same coin. They occur together in the Bible. Israel's salvation came through Egypt's judgment. Israel's salvation in this story came through God's judgment on Eglon and on Moab. And even Israel's judgment in this story came because they forgot their salvation. The teaching of the Bible is consistent throughout both Testaments. The double-edged sword of judgment isn't just reserved for Eglon's stomach. It's pointed at ours too. And it's not coming from the hand of Ehud. It's coming from the very mouth of God, as John describes so vividly in the book of Revelation. God's standard is still perfect, and we still fail to live up to it, just like every other human being who has ever lived. But that's not the end of the story. The good news is that all the waiting is over. What all those people in the Old Testament looked forward to and waited for happened. And it began with what we celebrated yesterday. I don't know if you noticed, nobody said anything to me, but we sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing in every Sunday morning service this Advent season. And if you know me, you know I think that it is the greatest hymn ever written. Therefore, we sing every single one of the verses. 
And the least sung verse in most churches is the one that I want to point us to this morning. It says, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. At Christmas, we don't just celebrate the birth of a good teacher or an inspiring moral example. We celebrate God's faithfulness to his promise to deliver his people. We rejoice in the coming of the snake crusher, of the second Adam, who can make right what the first one made wrong. And we rejoice that God's faithfulness to his promise led him not only to provide the way for us to be right with him forever, but to do it through the sacrifice of his own son. The message of God for his people in this passage, in Judges 3, at the beginning of the passage, and for Moab in the rest of the passage, is one of judgment. Ehud had a message from God to deliver to Eglon, and it was not a pleasant message. But I have a message from God for you this morning as well. Because of Jesus, there need not be a message of judgment for you. Even though we continue to forget God, even though we forget Him in so many ways and disobey His commands for us, the price of our covenant unfaithfulness has already been paid for those who have repented of their sin and who have turned to faith, turned in faith to God for forgiveness. We never, never need to fear the judgment of God because it has been fully and completely satisfied in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For biblical evidence of this truth, we can look to the words of Jesus himself. In John chapter 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Or the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who delivers us from the wrath to come. We as Christians may sometimes still be tempted to believe that God still has some small store of anger kept up for us. That there's still some left if we really mess up. If we can't get our act together. Yeah, Jesus took most of it. And he kept us out of hell. And that's great. But if we keep messing up again, God is really going to let us have it one of these days. The patience has to run out at some point. The mercy extends only so far. But let me speak to any Christian who feels that way this morning. That's a lie. Jesus has taken all of it. There is none left. He drank the cup of God's wrath and judgment to the dregs so that we would never taste a single drop. Christian, this life is the closest to hell that you're ever going to get. But if there's anyone listening this morning who's not a Christian, then this message is, to use the language of the passage, a double-edged sword. This life is the closest thing to heaven that anyone who has not turned to God in repentance and faith will ever experience. Jesus says in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see the difference that this makes? Jesus promises that for those who trust in him, there is no wrath. There is none left. But for those who do not, 
the wrath of God remains. That double-edged sword of God's wrath remains pointed straight at your heart. And if you're honest with yourself, you realize that you are no more capable of saving yourself than the Israelites were. But God has raised up a deliverer. And he will not cast out any who come to him. So come to him this morning. Renounce any claim you have on any ability to save yourself and plead the mercy of a God who has already taken all of the judgment that you deserve and placed it on himself. All he has left is grace and mercy and kindness and gentleness. Dane Ortland states the situation so clearly in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, Jesus deals gently and only gently with all sinners who come to him, irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will be his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. Side note, if you don't already own it, go to the Connection Center after the service, grab a free copy of Gentle and Lowly. We have plenty. Please take one. And commit to reading it this year. If there's anything that you've heard this morning that's new or confusing, or if you want to know what it means to turn from your sin and be a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to be standing out in the courtyard after the service. I would love to speak with you. I am trying to be careful because of COVID, so I would kindly ask that hugs and handshakes be held off for a couple weeks, but I will glad to uh, give you a rain check on that one and give you a hug later. But I would love to speak with you. The message of hope is open to all. Will you hear it? Those who are in Christ need not fear the judgment of God because Jesus has taken it all. Will you receive that free gift of salvation today? I'd love to speak with you in just a few minutes. Because Jesus bore the salvation, that Jesus bore the judgment that we deserve, we have salvation now and forevermore. They're two sides of the same coin. Even when we are unfaithful, our God remains faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you enough for this incomparable grace and mercy that you have shown your people. Even when we are unfaithful and we know we are so often, Lord, you remain faithful And you have made a way that our unfaithfulness will not keep us from you. You have brought us to yourself. Jesus has taken all of the wrath. There is no more. Lord, what a glorious truth. May we believe it. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, Lord, may we turn in faith and repentance to you, recognizing that we cannot save ourselves any more than the Israelites could but you have done what we never could. And so we thank you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.